0: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science.
1: Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly and I'm a science journalist and we talk to people smarter than us and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The Bizarre, The Unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside The Box of Oddities.
3: really enjoy where we live. This apartment building is very nice, but as of late, it seems as though... Mm The elevator smells like farts. I
2: knew that's exactly where you were going. What's the deal with that? We suspect we have a serial elevator farter.
3: Yeah, and this is a relatively new development, Mm -hmm. so um, I suspect we've narrowed it down to newer residents in our building. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Or maybe it's just someone who hates the holiday season. And oh, you
3: think that's what it is? Yeah, and they're maybe. taking it out on the elevator.
2: Right. Maybe it's not about whether or not they're new, but something has changed in their life. Kind of like during an episode of like CSI or NCIS, they'll say that the the perp had a trigger, and that's oh. what set them off on a murder spree or whatever. But in this case, they're murdering our nose holes.
3: That's an interesting theory and mm. one that I'm I'm willing to explore. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a story we got years ago from somebody who uh, sent us an email saying that uh, there was uh, they had a farting closet at work. Oh, where where anybody could fart any time, but you had to go into the farting closet to do it.
2: But what if someone's just been in the farting closet? That's the
3: the price you pay, I I think. Okay. Maybe maybe it's one of the former employees of the business that had the farting closet that has recently moved in to our apartment or our apartment building, and when they get into the elevator, it triggers them that way.
2: Right. They feel like they're in a farting closet.
3: Right. It's like a Pavlovian response, only with farts and elevators. I don't know. I don't know what goes through the mind of a serial elevator farter. I think that's a fair statement. Well, as you mentioned, the holidays are upon us. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There are parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting and caroling out in the snow.
2: I've never toasted marshmallows uh, during this time of year. My marshmallow toasting is always during the summer.
3: In the part of the song that talks about uh, scary ghost stories... Mm -hmm. That's not something we do here in the U.S., at least not anymore, but from what I understand, it's a popular holiday tradition in other places.
2: Really? Have you never heard A Christmas Carol?
3: Well, that's the only one I could think of. And they say scary ghost stories, plural.
2: Maybe they're talking about the ghosts individually.
3: Could be. Because
2: there are three.
3: Well, four if you count Marley.
2: And five if you count Ebenezer Scrooge, because he was dead all along.
3: Anyway... I thought today I'd I'd do a deep dive on the history of jolly old St. Nicholas.
2: Oh, wow. Or
3: Santa Claus, if you will. How did St. Nicholas become Santa Claus? St. Nicholas was pronounced by the Dutch as Sinterklaas. So when people from the Netherlands migrated to New World colonies, they brought that, that name with them, Sinterklaas. I like that. By the late 18th century, the story of Sinterklaas and his generosity reached America and American pop culture as the Dutch families that had immigrated there would gather to honor the death of St. Nicholas or Sinterklaas. And over time, Sinterklaas became Santa Claus. But St. Nicholas was a very real man. It was a real person. I did a topic of a couple of years ago, you might remember, about how in the 11th century, sailors went to Myra, where Santa Claus, or St. Nicholas, I should say, was buried and and stole some of his bones.
2: Yeah, I do remember that now. (laughs)
3: They actually stole part of Santa Claus's skeleton. The reason for this was that after St. Nicholas died in the year 343, he was buried in Myra, the town that he was bishop of. In the 11th century, sailors from Bari, said that they had a vision of St. Nicholas come to them, pleading for them to remove some of his bones from his crypt in Myra Mm. and take them to the sailor's home port of Bari.
2: Mm, I don't know. That
3: would be kind of weird, really. Please take my bones. (laughs) To know how that vision played out. Sailor from Bari nods off and... Suddenly, he sees a vision of St. Nicholas pleading with them, saying something to the effect of, holy crap, I wish somebody would steal a portion of my bones and take them to Bari for no apparent reason. <laughs> anyway, that's what happened. And when the bones were entombed in Bari, it was then that a clear liquid started oozing from his bones. Did they
2: just keep peeking in
3: on them? Well, it oozed from his bones and out of the tomb. Essentially, holy bone juice was what it was, because the holy bone juice reportedly had miraculous healing powers. It's important.
2: Yeah, I've heard that story. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, you're you're speaking of the Yule. Log. Only
2: once. Yeah. <laughs> Shame yeah. on you.
3: It's important to note though that Vari is a seaside town, and the tomb that part of St. Nicholas's skeleton is in is below sea level. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, there are many strange legends involving Saint Nicholas. One comes from a book by Benjamin Britten's, published in 1948, called St. Nicholas Cantara. In it, he says that St. Nicholas, the moment he was born in the year 270, yelled, God be glorified! Now imagine that! Oh
2: my God, that would be the most terrifying thing I've ever seen.
3: A second after a newborn baby was launched from the birth cannon, still covered in blood and placenta and yells at the top of his lungs, God be glorified. That's certainly amazing, but also I imagine a tad disconcerting for those in attendance uh, in the delivery room. Anyway, another story about St. Nicholas's generosity and the reason that he gave gifts started out as an attempt by St. Nicholas to keep girls from becoming sex workers.
2: Uh, um, yeah, what?
3: yeah. Story goes like this. A man who was extremely poor had three daughters and he couldn't marry them off. So he was considering selling them into prostitution as one does. Uh, when the first daughter came of age, St. Nicholas threw a bag of coins, gold coins through the window and suddenly the woman had a dowry and she was married off. Oh, I see. Yeah. Same thing with the second daughter, but the third daughter, when she came of age, the poor man decided that he was going to stay up late to see who this mysterious benefactor was. Not wanting to reveal his secret identity, St. Nicholas threw the bag of gold coins down the chimney, and a legend was born. Now, over Thanksgiving weekend, we offered the Cat and Jethro Cannibal Collection.
2: You're welcome.
3: <laughs> which highlighted several stories that we did on cannibalism over the past five years. There was actually a comment on the Freaks group. Somebody said, has anybody noticed that Cat and Jethro have been doing more cannibal stories lately? <laughs> <laughs> that was by design. Um, I guess it wouldn't surprise you, though, to learn that St. Nicholas was anti cannibalism.
2: Oh, okay.
3: The story goes like this. There was a crazy, supremely messed up butcher in the village where St. Nicholas lived, Myra. The butcher lured three little kids into his shop. He then butchered them and attempted to sell their meat as ham. Another version of the story was he butchered them and, and then pickled their meat in the basement. Now, this is one of the first miracles that St Nicholas is credited with.
2: I don't think that any of that is a miracle. That sounds terrible. Well,
3: that that part is. Yes, the miracle part is that he resurrected the three children. He brought them back to life. And I would like to think he also beat the shit out of the butcher, but we don't know for sure. Regardless, well done St Nick. Another miracle that St. Nicholas was noted for happened in 311 CE, while he was bishop in Myra. There was a famine that was wreaking havoc throughout the city, and a ship loaded with wheat for the emperor in Constantinople docked uh, in the harbor. Now, hearing about this, St. Nicholas went down to the dock and asked the sailors if they would help those who were starving by giving him some wheat to distribute, And the sailors refused, at least at first, because they had been contracted to deliver a specific weight of wheat to the emperor. Mm -hmm. St. Nick told them that no matter what they gave him, they would suffer no loss. The amount that they gave him was so vast, he was able to feed the entire city for two years with it. Uh, When the sailors got back to Constantinople, they weighed the wheat and somehow the weight of the wheat had stayed the same. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, did you know that Santa Claus's job used to be done by a goat? <laughs> it's, no. <laughs> it's true. Uh, before the legend of Claus or Santa Claus, Scandinavian countries had a magical creature called the Yule Goat.
2: Now, this is a story I can get behind.
3: He was known for wandering from town to town, making sure that people had completed all of their preparations for the Yule celebration. Now, the big difference in this is that instead of giving gifts, the Yule goat came into town and demanded them. (laughs)
2: Oh. Oh. It's
3: a real shitty Christmas legend.
2: I love it.
3: Uh, It seems that most people felt that way, too. So, the legend evolved once... The legend of winter gift giving became popular and spread throughout Europe. The Yule Goat started bringing gifts instead of demanding them from villagers. (laughs) But that wasn't until about the 19th century. Then around the year 1900, the Yule Goat was laid off and replaced by Santa Claus. This is how all of these different things have kind of combined to create the modern story of Santa. I want a Yule Goat. Who wouldn't want a Yule goat? Did you know that there is some speculation that Santa may have castrated all of his reindeer? What? Yeah. Here's how this one works. All of the names of Santa's reindeer are male. Male reindeer shed their antlers in the winter. Santa's reindeer are always pictured with antlers mm-hmm. when they're making their Christmas deliveries. So, one of two things. Either the reindeer are female and Santa gave them male names, or they're male reindeer that have been castrated. Why, Santa? Why? That's not a very jolly old elfish of you.
2: I think that maybe someone put way too much thought into that.
3: <laughs> My source information was Benjamin Britten's 1948 St. Nicholas Cantata, Gizmodo, and the meal.com <laughs> Some of the history of St. Nicholas is a little bit dark. Aren't you glad that the uh, the story didn't evolve to St. Nicholas instead of leaving coal in bad children's stockings? Uh, he left Hunks of young boys that had been butchered.
2: That is a dark thought. You feeling okay? Hmm?
3: This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca.
2: And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them.
3: Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it, and that's where Greenlight can help.
2: Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families, Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings, while kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills.
3: Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely, thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer.
1: And now, that thing in the middle. There once
3: was a dolphin named Kelly. Kelly resided at the Institute for Marine Mammal Studies in Mississippi. Now, Kelly showed signs of tremendous intelligence, especially when her trainers began rewarding her with fish for bringing them any litter or debris that she found floating in their pools. But Kelly was much smarter than the trainers realized. She started hiding pieces of paper at the bottom of her pool, and she would tear off a piece to give to the trainer to claim her reward. She actually realized that she would be rewarded anyway, regardless of the size of the piece of paper, and passed this trick on to her calves as well. Max sent us an email. He said, I've been loving your Thanksgiving cannibal special episodes over the past week. Mm. Yeah, these, these cannibal episodes really taste better after you reheat them. My, my now wife, Dana, who you met at the last New York City show, got home from work on Monday. Mm. She's a teacher. Knowing her co-teacher was out sick, I asked, how was the sub? Dana responded, I ate the sub. My, my jaw dropped to the floor. It was at that point I realized Dana had taken her leftover sub sandwich with her the night before for lunch and had eaten that sub <laughs> for lunch. <laughs> Little did she know I'd been listening to the stories of cannibals all day. Thanks right. to you guys. Phew, Close call.
2: <laughs> Hi, Dana.
3: Bon appetit.
2: Nicole sent us a message. Y'all were talking about the python that died in the guy's backyard You remember the one that had eaten him? Eaten him and then
3: crawled into his yard and died, I wanted
2: to throw my two cents in on that. So pythons and most other constrictors are active hunter and have an absolutely incredible sense of smell. So good that it's directional, like the fork on the end of their tongue can differentiate between how strong the scent is on one side compared to the other. Wow! So the black snake in your garden can follow the mole it caught back to its nest and eat its whole family. So when the big python ate that guy
3: in the orchard... Oh, he followed the scent back to eat the rest of his family.
2: Very interesting. Thank you, Nicole.
3: Ooh, that is amazing. Kayla sent us an email. Hey guys, when you talked about the pronunciation and Kat mentioned Du Bois. Uh, I just wanted to chime in. I'm a package delivery driver in Nebraska, and there is a town there called Du Bois. Having previously lived in Maine and around a lot of French people, I pronounced the name Du Bois. And someone laughed at me and said, we're not that fancy here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Du Bois. I just think it's funny to be called fancy when you pronounce something in French. Well, you can say anything in French, and it'll sound fancy. French is just just a fancy language. Is that true? I'll give you an example. Ma chou se sent la mer. Is that something about poop? It means my shoe smells like shit, but doesn't it sound fancy?
0: I don't know. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
1: Just tell one friend to subscribe to this podcast. And if you don't, we know where you live. Remember, this is The Box of Oddities.
3: Okay, what do you got?
2: Coffin. The word is Old French. Is
3: it now? Yeah,
2: and it means little basket. And (laughs) in Middle English, it could refer to a chest or even a pie. Uh, Generally, a savory meat pie with a crust or pastry being tall, straight on the sides with a sealed lid and bottom.
3: So did they name the box after the meat pie pastry or Mm -hmm. was it the other way around?
2: No, it it was exactly that way.
3: Okay, good. And hopefully there was no soggy bottom. You've been watching way too much of the Great British Baking Show again.
2: Burying someone in a box or something of the sort has its roots back to ancient Egypt and Asia, where wood, cloth, and paper were used to make sarcophagus style burial boxes. In Europe, the Celts began making box like tombs out of flat stones around the year 700. But for centuries, things like this were mainly only used to bury nobility or aristocrats
3: or someone Yeah, if you, know, you, if you didn't have money, they would just throw you in the ground.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mostly wrapped in burial shrouds, sometimes with tools or jewelry or other important things to them in life. In 1700, the English law permitted all people to use coffins for burial. And that kind of surprises me that there needed to be a law for that.
3: They're very proper.
2: <laughs> the parish coffin was the kind most often used during this period. It was a vessel for carrying the body from the church to the graveside, adding dignity to that moment.
3: And they wouldn't bury that. They would just carry the body from the church in that and then just put them in the hole that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: At that time, the coffin was mostly hexagonal, with six sides, wider at the shoulders, and then tapered down the length of the body. Most didn't use hardware of any kind, though the higher social station you held, the more likely that there would be iron grips or metal breastplates, etc. In the States, of course, they often followed British customs, obs. And the British American colonies adopted that new law. By 1704, the use of coffins in Maryland, for example, was at 90%. And so, a simple six-sided wooden coffin with a lid was most commonplace. Though, over the next hundred years or so, they were becoming replaced often with rectangular coffins. What
3: was the reason for that? Maybe it was cheaper and easier to make? Sure. I'm just going to throw out ideas until something makes sense.
2: That sounds great.
3: Maybe the six-sided... Uh, coffin was created kind of like we used to have shoulder pads for women in the 80s just to make them look a little more beefy.
2: You think that in death being beefy at the top was important to people? Well, maybe.
3: I don't know. Those were different times.
2: All right. Motifs in headstones and coffin decoration in the 18th century also started to show a shift as well, from symbols of mortality like skulls, hourglasses, and, and scythes as well, the symbols started to shift to cherubs and angels with mm. trumpets and so on and so forth. Now, in the States, it was during the American Civil War that we started to see a real shift in how we bury people. Of course, the Civil War started in 1861, and according to statistics on the war's costs from Louisiana State University, the war resulted in at least 1,030,000 casualties. It's about 3% of our population at the time.
3: That's just remarkable. Whenever I hear that statistic, it blows my mind.
2: The incredible violence combined with the scale of death that this nation saw led to what was called the beautification of death and the disconnection from death. Before this period, families would often prepare their loved ones for burial in the kitchen or in the parlor. It was, (laughs) death was dealt with at home.
3: We're going to wash up Gramps' dead body next to where we make toast.
2: Yeah, well, I mean... He was your Gramps, so you were going to deal with
3: him. (laughs) I guess so. It makes sense.
2: But the scale of loss during the war led to it becoming more commercialized. People largely were exhausted from burying their own, and coffins started being mass-produced. And this shift, the beautification or the effort to distance the living from the unpleasantness of death, combined with the post-revolutionary waning of traditional British customs, led to the more rectangular-shaped boxes being used, more decorative elements being used, and the change to the word casket.
3: That's interesting.
2: Thank you. I thought so. <laughs> now, often the word coffin, coffin,
3: coffin.
2: I'm from New England. Coffin. Now,
3: hey, hey, <laughs> don't climb on your father's coffin. Now, you should stay right there while I pack the car.
2: Often, the word coffin and casket are used interchangeably, though that wouldn't quite be accurate, though. The meaning of casket has, in some places, been extended to cover coffins. The crucial difference, as recognized by funeral directors of the time at least, was that caskets were four-sided, with a rectangular shape, and marketed as being more decorative, using more hardware or furniture, as it was called, and unlike the six-sided coffin didn't remind people so much of what was inside and therefore death.
3: That's another interesting thing that has, uh, that has always fascinated me is how in the early days of the American colonies, especially 18th, 19th century, coffins or caskets were made by the local furniture makers. Right. And even to this day, In many towns, including my hometown of Holton, Maine, there are two businesses. One is a furniture company, and one is a funeral home, Dunn's.
2: Yeah, and that wasn't exclusive to the States by any means. Uh, Coffin Works in Birmingham, England, was a Victorian coffin fittings factory. They mostly worked Hmm. uh, with the brass instruments that were used on the coffins and eventually became a coffin factory and and is now a museum, which opened in October of 2014. Amazing. The casket made the process easier for some people because the thing that they were putting in the ground didn't look so much like the shape of a body. Mm. It was pretty and decorative, and they could make the things on it reflect the, the person that they loved, that they were burying. And it was sold to the masses as a more dignified way of dealing with death, by those who made money by dealing with death. Though not everyone bought into the idea. Nathaniel Hawthorne in 1863 called caskets a vile modern phrase which compels a person to shrink from the idea of being buried.
3: Well, yes, that that's the point. You want to shrink from the idea of Burying somebody that you love.
2: Well, Hawthorne thought that was not necessary and that that you got to face death head on and with a hexagonal coffin.
3: (laughs)
1: Okay.
2: Now you can buy your box to be buried in, whatever it is you want to call it, at a Costco. But over half of Americans these days choose to be cremated, and that percentage has been rising for some time. Again, showing a shift in how we deal with death. Hmm. That's what I would like. I mean, unless you can find some sort of nice eco-pod or something.
3: Yeah, you had written down your your final wishes at a very early age, uh, when I first met you, Mm -hmm. in fact. You had them tacked up on a bulletin board in your kitchen, and one was, I want to be cremated, and I want my ashes put inside something funny. (laughs) I said, this is the woman for me.
2: Now, if you would like to see more about the history of coffins/slash caskets and funerary practices, uh, which is funny because my app that I use to write changed practices to peacocks, <laughs> and then I thought, wouldn't funerary peacocks be a wonderful thing?
3: It would. Instead of white Who horses, doves. Yeah, instead of white horses drawing the casket, <laughs> you have beautiful funerary. Peacocks.
2: Anyway, you can go to, as I mentioned, Coffin Works in Birmingham, England, which looks super cool, by the way. And if you're in the States, the National Museum of Funeral History, which opened in 1992, is located in Houston, Texas. And they feature one-of-a-kind coffins, a celebrity deaths section, death of the Pope's section, and a funerary bus.
3: A funerary bus. Yes,
2: that was used to eliminate the procession The bus would just pick everyone up and bring them to the the graveyard or the cemetery.
3: (laughs) I wonder if they provided snacks along the way. I hope so.
2: Morning makes me peckish. (laughs) I got my information from Roadside America, Coffin Works, IFL Science, Trusted Caskets, and Golden Charter.
3: I love that. Fascinating.
2: Thank you. I did my research while bathing in a tub with a Serenity Self-Care bath bomb.
3: Yeah, that's we're gonna do a spa night tonight, aren't we?
2: Yes, we are.
3: And and can we use one of those bath bombs? Those are pretty cool. Um, The ones that we have are, they have little messages in the bottle inside the bath bomb. So you put the bath bomb in the tub and it fizzes your tub up and it makes it, you smell really nice and everything. And it's all natural ingredients. But then at the end, there's a little bottle inside. And inside the bottle is uh, words of encouragement. Or it could be anything, I guess, really, right?
2: Yeah. On the website, you can actually customize what you want to have inside the message in the bottle.
3: Hey, this is maybe this is a good gift idea.
2: SerenitySweetsAndSelfCare.com. And we do know the person who sells them. But don't let that sway
3: you. They're very nice. We'll put the link in our show notes. I mean, if you want, you know, to check them out or whatever. Anyway, love you guys. See you next time.
2: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
1: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. The oddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.
2: <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. I was spacing out. I was thinking about the fact that they replaced all the flowers
1: outside. <laughs> they look really nice though (laughs) i'm so
3: happy to hear that Mm -hmm. you approve of their gardening skills
0: do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course Women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.